0: why is it turning red man why did I do that I'm getting nervous sweats God why did I do that Fuck, man why did I do that
1: hello and welcome to why did I do that a show where each week I'm joined by a lovely guest and I get them to tell me an embarrassing story because I'm a prick my name is Charlie and today I'm joined by author playwright podcaster bloody it's Gabe Bergmoser, how you doing, Gabe? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm I'm very good, thank you. I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little bit nervous. Why? I've I've listened to every episode of Movie Maintenance probably twice. Oh right, I've read um, the first two Boone Shepard books, so I'm a bit like you know, big fan. I'm fangirling out very slightly. Oh
0: cool, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And um, and I f- I feel like you know, but... I feel like there was some there was some pretty trying Movie Maintenance episodes in there, so I feel like I have to sort of apologize like on behalf of people who are on that show but um but yeah no awesome man that's um that just makes me feel like a little bit if it makes you feel any better like it leaves me kind of being a bit like oh shit i better not fuck this up um i have to have to live up to a standard here which is a bit daunting but anyway i'll, tr- I'll do my best
1: oh thank- no you it's you'll be fine you'll be better than like me most of the time it's all good so basically how the show works is i'm going to ask you a couple questions just so we can get to know each other a bit easier and the listeners can get to know you i always feel like these sort of stories work best when you kind of get a feeling of what the other person's like, and you can kind of imagine yourself as them a bit easier. So, um, are you ready for the first question? Go for it. The whole world basically now is in isolation. What, what are you doing to sort of stave off the, the craziness, to just sort of keep sane and keep yourself feeling mentally quite well? Um. What's your isolation tips?
0: I'm, for me, it's routine. Like, I think it's, and I was talking to a friend about this yesterday who, You know, is obviously in the same boat as the rest of us. He's, you know, isolated and everything. And, like, for me, it hasn't been been that enormously... uh, How do I put it? Like, it hasn't hugely overhauled the way that I operate because I work from home anyway. So, you know, the only real difference from my end is that I, you know, I can't really go out as much anymore. But, you know, but, like, I am finding that 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 is kind of a big thing because, you know, you can't, like... You can't just arbitrarily go down the road and get a coffee or, you know, go out and get a drink or go out for dinner or any of that stuff. So I do think there are little things you do. Like, you know, for me, it's all about just sort of, you know, maintaining a really, a really strict, um a really strict routine, a really strict kind of, you know, this is what I do at this time, this is what I do at this time, this is what I do at this time. And sort of, you know, alternating between uh, between work, between household chores, between, you know, like exercise, between, you know, going out and doing like your one walk around the block with the dog, and between, you know, doing some writing, uh, doing some reading, watching an episode of TV, watching a movie. Um, I'm playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas at the moment. Very so nice. <laughs> that's um, that's filling quite a few sort of empty hours. But, but yeah, like I've, I've, I've kind of like quite quite stringently regimented at what time i do all of these things so yeah. so yeah that's um that's kind of how i'm doing it but but yeah I'm, I'm somebody who like doesn't do well if i don't have routine at the best of times and this is not the best of times so at the moment like just yeah I'm, yeah I'm
1: literally exactly the same i have to have like a bullet journal where i write literally like nine like do this ten do this otherwise i just sit on my sofa all day and watch the simpsons and then feel terrible
0: <laughs> I mean, I think you know. Luckily, we're all in the same boat, and I don't think anyone's judging anyone for sitting on the sofa and watching The Simpsons. But, um, but yeah, that's that to me is like the most important thing, and that's so far it's worked. Like so far, I haven't descended into you know head slamming against wall insanity. So we're we're doing okay so far.
1: Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear it. Okay, you ready for the final question? the The Boone Shepherd series of books that you wrote um, have a lot of sort of uh, historical and literary characters in them. Was there anyone in that you wanted to put in there, or if you could? put one more character in who would you want to put in there and why well
0: there was actually i mean look it's it was immensely self-indulgent but in the very first draft of the second boone shepherd book boone shepherd's american adventure there was a scene where as anybody who has read boone american adventure or even just heard the title would know the second book is set in america and the boone shepherd series is largely set sort of in the 1960s so In the very first draft of American Adventure, there was a scene where Bruce... uh, Sorry, I I just gave it away. Where basically Boone (laughs) Shepard is in New Jersey for plot contrived reasons. And he meets a young guitar player called Bruce who gives him a pep talk and sort of, you know, alludes to a couple of songs that he will later go on to sing. And it was just like a really, really like very self-indulgent excuse for me, who is a massive Bruce Springsteen fan to have a scene where Boone got to like briefly hang out with Bruce Springsteen. So, I mean, in American <laughs> Adventure, you know, you get scenes where he hangs out, you know, he doesn't hang out with, but he interacts with Elvis. There's, there are some characters in there who are very loosely veiled analogs for the Beatles. And I only kind of changed the names because I diverged pretty heavily from history with their role. But, um, but yeah, I really, you know, because, because part of the thrill of the Boone Shepard trilogy was to just sort of get together different, different like properties or historical figures or artists who i really loved and admired and you know pay tribute to all of them in sort of weird different ways that you know hopefully eventually became something of a coherent plot so you know bruce springsteen who is my all-time favorite recording artist you know probably my all-time favorite artist full stop um i would have loved to have found a way to you know in a similar way pay tribute to him but the problem was that the way that the only way that I could think of was fairly inorganic. It didn't really work for the story in the way that the other ones did. And ultimately it just came off as exactly what it was, which was an excuse for me to be like, Oh, wink, wink, look, it's Bruce Springsteen. And I like Bruce Springsteen. And it didn't, it didn't say anything or add anything. Like, I mean, you know, with, with stuff like that, I think, you know, I think as a writer, you, you have to put into a story, things that you enjoy and things that you want to write about and things that, you know, that have meaning to you. But the thing is, you've got to make sure that it has meaning to an audience who isn't just you outside of, oh, I get that reference. So, you know, for example, there's a scene where Boone meets Elvis and that's like a silly, funny comedic scene where Elvis speaks only in Elvis quotes, but it's serving two purposes. One, hopefully it's kind of funny and two, it's also advancing the plot, but the sort of sub purpose is, oh cool. I get to write a scene where Boone's hanging out with Elvis Presley, but I would argue that scenes like that (laughs) do advance the plot in key ways and do, Add something to the tapestry of the overall narrative, whereas the scene I originally wrote with Bruce Springsteen did not, unfortunately. So, I mean, if I, if I ever, and I hope I one day do, if I ever have occasion to return to the Booniverse in some way, then I would love to get Bruce in there, at least in some small cameo.
1: <laughs> Very nice. I'm, I'm, to be honest, not surprised. <laughs> no, I... that Bruce Springsteen was the person that you wanted. No. <laughs> but um i yeah personally i'd love a return to the booniverse if, if that ever happens but you know
0: like i would love to at some stage like i think you know it with the trilogy as written like it i definitely sort of reached the end of the story that i wanted to tell with it but the thing is because you know there were so many colorful characters in that series who i really would have loved to delve into more like promethea peters or you know whoever else and you know i've got i've got a couple of like ideas floating around for you know like for like theater stories that kind of you know focus on Prometheus or focus on side characters, and I've got this like vague, vague idea sort of outlined in my head for a trilogy of books about Boone Shepard's daughter, set like twenty years later. So that's like very kind of that. That's where one day I would love to find, have the opportunity to write that. I mean, if if I you know find the time and if somebody allows me to do it, that would be awesome. But but yeah, for now it's on ice. But I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a final goodbye. Like I definitely think one day. They'll come back, but you know we'll see.
1: Oh, nice, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Thank you for answering those questions. I'm, I'm now gonna, gonna hand it over to you. I'm gonna give the, the full reins of the show to you. Just please, just uh, go, go on with your embarrassing story.
0: Oh Very god. Cool okay. Um. So, so I, uh, full disclosure. Um. I do believe I have told this story before on one of the like subscriber only. Sort of supplementary episodes for Movie Maintenance a few years ago, so like some people listening might have heard it, um, and I'm sorry if you have, but it is it is a story that I find utterly humiliating, so it does I think bear repeating to anyone who hasn't heard it before. Um, So the the the, to give full context for this story and the the beginning of this story is supposed is going to. It will inevitably sound like a humble brag, and it's not meant to. And you'll understand why it's not meant to when you get to the end of the story. Um, But uh, I understand how it's not in any way, shape or form a brag. But a few years ago, I was incredibly fortunate to win a screenwriting award that basically got me a ticket to the International Emmys. So for those who don't know, the International Uh Emmys... They're not the same as the Primetime Emmys. the really well-known Emmys. They're, they're Emmys for basically any TV show that is not... Or was not funded by American money, I believe, is the way it works. So you get quite a few English and Australian shows on there. But you also get, you know, a lot of non-English language speaking shows and things like that. So it was, it was like the most incredible... You know, all told with the potentially glaring exception of the story I'm about to tell. Um, It was, you know, one of the most, bar none, amazing weekends of my life. And I've written about it a lot and I've spoken about it a lot, so I won't, you know, tread over the ground too much. But for context, you know, it's like I had never had... Prior to that, I had been doing movie maintenance I think for only a couple of months at that stage and you know I'd finished my master of screenwriting but I had no idea of where to go next and I definitely wasn't getting any you know job offers from the big production companies in Melbourne let alone any interest from overseas. Um, Boone Shepard hadn't been published yet you know there, there was essentially there were essentially no really exciting prospects coming my way and then out of nowhere I won this award. And, you know, that was that was mind-blowing for me. So, like, literally up until I got on the plane, I was thinking, this is a mistake, they've gotten the wrong person, this isn't going to happen. But I got on the plane, nobody kicked me off, I got to America, you know, I went to the office of the Emmys and nobody said, wait, hang on, you're not this person, what are you doing here? So, you know, I just sort of, like, figured I'd just keep my mouth shut and pretend I was supposed to be there and, you know, float through the weekend that way. And, and you know, for the most part, it was it was incredible. Like, you know, it was... Like you know, kind of getting up and being given your award in front of world class filmmakers and being approached by all of these agents and producers and stuff suddenly wanting to you know wanting to see more of your stuff and wanting to know who you were like it was the biggest turnaround and I was I was kind yeah, of on cloud nine all through this weekend. So the 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 way it ran was that there were two days of what they call the. International Emmys Festival which is like a lot of panels for all the nominees and they all get up and you know there are Q&As with them and meet and greets and it was during that weekend that I got my award there was a live stage reading of my script and it was all incredible then on the Monday that was when the actual Emmys gala itself happened but during the day on the Monday there was a lunch like a big fancy lunch at the Hilton for all the Emmys nominees and all the people who were there and the guest of honor at this lunch was Julian Fellows. Now, Julian Fellows, for those who don't know, is the writer and creator of Downton Abbey. So, essentially, oh, okay. every every year they give this, the Founders Award, to somebody really well-known. So, like, one year it was, um, like, David Benioff and uh, D.B. Weiss from Game of Thrones. Another year it was Matthew Weiner from Mad Men. So, you know, it was always kind of pretty impressive people working in the TV sphere. And the year I was there, it happened to be Julian Fellows. So... I hadn't watched an episode of Downton Abbey in my life at this point, And I didn't really know much about Julian Fellows. I knew who he was, but not much more than that. So, you know, it was like, obviously really cool to see him, but I wasn't, you know, jumping up and down the same way I would have been if it had been like Vince Gilligan or, or somebody from a show that I knew or, or, you know, knew yeah. intimately. But when he kind of got up and gave his speech, I was really, really enraptured by everything he had to say because I mean, Julian Fellows he essentially looks exactly like what you imagine the guy who writes Downson Abbey looks like. And he talks exactly what how you would imagine the guy who writes Downson Abbey to talk. Like, if you Google Julian Fellowes, you'll see exactly what I mean. Like, he's a he's a slightly, like, Hitchcock-looking British man with a very proper English accent. And, you know, talks very deliberately and very, you know, he's he's... You know, I would say he was a cliché, except then he got up and he gave this speech. And... He, do- he does look exactly yes. what you think he looks like. I just Googled him. Um, so Julian Fellows gets up and he gives this speech. And it was like, it was really, really affecting. Because like at this point, as I said before, you know, I'd kind of been at a, I'd been in a really directionless place in my life and career until this award came along and I was only 23 you know but Julian Fellows gets up and he speaks he spoke about how for years and years you know he was trying to make it as a writer he was trying to sell his movies he was trying to sell TV shows and it just wasn't happening and you know and I knew I intimately knew what that felt like you know that that perpetual yeah. feeling of being smacked down that feeling of not being good enough that like lingering fear that maybe I don't actually have what it takes and maybe I am just barking up the wrong tree but now I've gone so far down this road it is it a fallacy of sunk costs or you know do I need to pull up stumps and do something else you know so so at at this point in my life where I just kind of gone from this like massive 360 from from that state to this sort of dream come true, like amazing weekend. What Julian Fellows spoke about with immense vulnerability and immense honesty was really affecting to me. Like I sat there and he was talking about how he'd been struggling for so long. And then about how, how incredible it was for him to finally get given the opportunity to write. I think it was Gosford Park was his first film, with screenwriter and then and Abbey from there. And essentially he just gave this speech that was essentially being summed up as don't give up, like keep working at it, keep being persistent. He, you know, put it in words where he was like, it took him until 50 to reach where he wanted to reach, but he got there in the end. And he spoke about how there were so many points where he could have given up. There were points where the smartest option seemed like he should have given up, but he didn't do it. And, you know, it, it really spoke to me. Yeah. So, I'm kind of thinking, if the opportunity comes, I really need to speak to him and just tell him how much that speech meant to me. So, anyway, later that night, um, the actual Emmys gala itself happens. Um, and, you know, not to, not to like, sound in any way churlish or ungrateful, but the thing is, you know, it it it, it can't be understated what... What a mind-blowing experience it is to sit in that room and watch the awards and see the celebrities and, you know, be a part of it. But at the same time, there is this definite divide where, because a lot of the shows being awarded are non-English language speaking, you know, French, Italian, German shows, etc. You don't necessarily have that much of a stake in what is going to win and what isn't in the same way you would if it was like the Oscars, you know? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. so. You know, that that was definitely an element that, like, as the night sort of went on, I... I kind of... You know, I sort of... I was was obviously super engaged, but, like, I was sitting on a table with a bunch of filmmakers from Japan who were really, really nervous about whether their documentary was going to win or not, and they were just sitting there, you know, absolutely terrified, absolutely... Like, everybody basically around me were nominees. And then there was me. And, you know, that... You feed off that energy a bit, but you don't necessarily invest in the same way. So... Basically, I just kind of sat there. I enjoyed the night. I wasn't really paying that much attention to what was winning and what wasn't. And I was drinking a lot of free beer. So it reaches the end of the night. And I, the only people I really know, the, the nominees who I got to know on the table did not win. So they left early. So I didn't really know anyone apart from the, the, the people who worked for the International Emmys. And, you know, they were busy dealing with the actually important people. So I'm like, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the bar. So I go to the bar and I say, you know, can I have a beer? But at this point, it's the end of the night. They're like, oh, you know, we don't actually have any beer left. We've only got spirits and aperitifs. And I don't really drink spirits as a general rule. Like I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty strict beer drinker. Um, I find that spirits sort of get to me a little bit more. So I just sort of avoid them as a general rule of thumb. But that's a good idea. I'm literally the opposite. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, it's different. Everyone, I will right? drink.
1: Like, I will not drink beer as a rule, but I will drink vodka just. It's funny, I know a lot can. of
0: <laughs> Yeah, I know a lot of people who are the other way around, but for me it's like I'm I'm safe I know I'm safe with beer. But anyway, they didn't have beer. Yeah. And the guy behind the bar says, you know, would you like a scotch? And you know, I thought, well, you know, if I'm gonna drink any spirit, I'll drink a scotch. So I said, yeah, I'll have a jamisons. The thing is at this point of the night, they're trying to get rid of all their booze. So he goes, Okay, one jamison's coming up, and he pours me a pint glass of straight jamisons. And just gives it to me. No ice, no nothing. Just a pint glass of like, you know, amber death. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to die. I can't drink. I sort of like, you know, gamely had one sip and then I was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. So I'm kind of like, you know, looking around for somewhere to put this, you know, this cup of pure destruction And as I do, I turn around and I see Julian Fellows moving for the exit, surrounded by like this sort of, you know, posse of important looking people, you know, wearing suits that were definitely not bought from the store like mine. So I'm kind of standing there watching them being like, I really want to say something to him, but I'm really intimidated by these people. But then I just sort of thought, this is going to be my only chance, right? This is going to be my only chance. So I sort of, like, scurry over to where the group is sort of stopped in this, like, circle formation near the exit. And they're all talking, like, Julian Fellows is kind of holding court and they're all, you know, enraptured by what he's saying. And I sort of, you know, try to naturally kind of work my way into the circle. And it's just sort of not happening. You know, they're, they're basically totally ignoring me. And I'm sort of moving around, trying to kind of get in there. Nobody's sort of giving me an in. And so finally in this moment of, like, pure, like, I just have to sort of, you know, do something, I reach out and I poke Julian Fellows in the back. And Julian Fellows sort of turns around looking a bit taken aback. Now, um, Julian Fellows is not a tall man, but in that moment, he seemed gigantic. Like, in that moment, he was (laughs) towering over me. And I just sort of stared at him and I was like... Hi, um, yeah, I, I, Mr, Mr. Fellows, um, hi, look, I, uh, yeah, sorry, I, um, look, I, uh, hi, hi, oh, wow, sorry, oh, man, didn't mean to poke you in the, anyway, look, um, uh, Mr. Fellows, I, I just, I wanted to say, I, I was at the lunch today, and I saw your speech, and, and I thought it was really great, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't watch Downton Abbey, but, like, I just thought your speech was really great, and, like, it just, it, you know, I, I really spoke to me, and I thought it was, you know, I, I just, I mean, I absolutely, oh, oh, shit, absolutely, that's not a word, shit, um, I, you know, I, I, and then as I'm, like, running all my words together because I was so nervous, I just see Julian Fellows's horrified gaze move from my face to the gigantic glass of scotch in my hand. And I kind of... I kind of stop. I can feel all of the eyes of this whole group of important people on me. And I just sort of look at Julian Fellows and I very feebly say... I won an award (laughs) and Julian fellows just says, yes, well very good. And then he turns around and continues his conversation with his group. And I'm just standing there holding my scotch, which I subsequently net and spent the rest of the night. Absolutely legless. Because I completely humiliated myself in front of Julian Fellows, and in the middle of trying to tell him how important his speech was to me, I also told him that I do not watch his show. So, <laughs> so that was the time I totally embarrassed myself in front of Julian Fellows.
1: That was great.
0: <laughs> Since then, have you, like, have you watched Downton Abbey and like tweeted him, just like, hey, I watched it now, it's really good. No, it's like, it's one of those things I just can't quite bring myself to. Like, it's, like, my girlfriend's really into it, and I've sort of, like, walked in occasionally to find her watching it, and I have this, like, you know, vampire reacting to a crucifix sort of reaction when I see it. I'm just like, you know, I kind of, you know, immediately my eyes kind of squint, and I'm like, fellows, and I sort of storm out. Um, But, I mean, you know, like, I I mean, if I was Julian Fellows, I can't say that I, I mean, I can't say that I would have reacted any differently. Like, I I mean, I don't, like, I, I have to stress, I was... I was a total gibbering wreck. Like I was, and it wasn't even because I was super (laughs) drunk or anything. I was just, you know, just on the spot and I didn't know how to react. And all of these eyes are on me. And, you know, I mean, Julian fellows, even though, as I told him stupidly, even though I don't watch his show, like I I knew who he was and he was not, he's not an insignificant person. And, and all of that just kind of built up. And like, it, it's a, it's a weird one, you know I mean? Meeting anybody who, you know, who has that kind of status or that kind of position and, you know, you're, you're there in a scenario with them where you, you sort of feel like you have a license to approach them and talk to them like a peer, but at the same time, you know, you really don't because you haven't had the career or the achievements that they've had. And, you know, then add that to the fact that, you know, you've awkwardly, finagled your way into this conversation and everybody's just staring at you and all eyes are on you and you don't know how to you don't know how to it, it was just it was just a total absolute wreck of a conversation
1: i i do the thing in those situations this is just making me think um last summer i went to um a, a festival called the vegan camp out yep where they have like speakers and all that stuff and i don't know if you know james aspey
0: i don't sorry no
1: um he's quite famous he's like a really well-known vegan activist and um he did a speech and then he was like where all the food vans were sort of like taking pictures and my girlfriend was like oh we should go and talk to him and I was just like sure yeah okay and then I got there and I was just like I have nothing to say to this person like, yeah but... what, like I just like I have no idea what words are going to come out of my mouth and in the end I was just like didn't, I don't think I said anything other than hello. And I just let her do all the talking. I was like, I don't, you know, I'm just going to leave this.
0: But I mean, it's even like, it's because I've had it. I've been to, you know, book signings of, you know, authors who I really admire. And even in those scenarios, mm. kind of feeling really, um, yeah, really like, really almost sort of terrified to kind of, you know, go up to them. And then, you know, because you, it, it's always that weird thing, right? Where it's like, if there's anyone who you admire, you have that mix of being you know you don't want to be just like another gibbering fan but you also and you know you want to sort of talk to them on a equal level but of course there's not an equal level because because you know you really admire them and they have no idea who you are and you know you also want to tell them how much they mean to you but at the same time you know you don't want to be the you know the other screaming fan kind of and it's just it's it's really really hard and then you end up just kind of you know, walking away thinking, ah, oh, fuck, I have really embarrassed myself. <laughs> but, but I mean, what do you do? Like, it's just, it's one of the, I mean, you know, like, I probably would have felt quite differently about the Julian Fellows thing if, if, you know, if it had been, you know, somebody who, like, like Vince Gilligan who wrote Breaking Bad or, or Matthew Weiner who wrote yeah, uh, yeah. Mad Men. It, it might have been, you know, I, I might have been really mortified by that. But, uh, and I, I mean, I was mortified, don't get me wrong, at the time. But, I think in terms of the actual impact on my day-to-day life, it just sort of meant that I was never going to watch Downton Abbey because it was just too embarrassing (laughs) Every time I did. Like, I just, I mean, I know that, you know, nobody else saw this story and I don't have to tell anybody this story, but I I do. And so consequently, whenever I watch Downton Abbey, I just feel like, you know, I'm sitting there kind of being judged largely by myself, but you know.
1: Have you had anyone sort of act that way around you? Like, or just sort of be like, Oh yeah, you wrote those books. I didn't like them, or I didn't read them. Is oh that just, god, yeah. Um, has that ever happened to you?
0: It's yeah, it's it's a weird one. Like I've had um, you know, I've I've met like particularly during the movie maintenance days, I met a lot of fans of both the podcast and the Boone Shepherd books, and mm. you know that was that was always really really cool. Like I love that, and you know because I mean like to me it's like I think in a weird way. I, I was then and still am early enough in my career that I think I get more I get more nervous and sort of jittery with my words when I'm talking to somebody who likes something I've made because I'm just so flattered and so kind of like, You know, how do I wrap my head around the fact that somebody really likes this thing that I've made up that much and then I kind of feel like I've got all of this gratitude that I want to express to them and I want to tell them, you know, how much it means to me. And so it weirdly, I think like there's a weird status thing where like I feel like I'm the one who has to like somehow because because like it is so it is so like it's still something that I don't think I'm quite used to yet. I mean, I've had... I've had like I, I do a bit of work with um, Melbourne Young Writers Studio in Melbourne, which you know is a initiative kind of helping kids and teenagers develop you know their their craft of storytelling, and you know I've worked with kids there who've been like oh wait you wrote Boone Shepherd yeah I didn't like Boone Shepherd, and that's that's <laughs> awkward because you know you you want to like when you're sort of teaching them that way or you're working as a tutor for story writing you. You yeah. want to sort of build a rapport with them, but it's kind of hard when they just openly told you they didn't like that thing that you made. And I, like, I consider myself somebody who's got like fairly thick skin. Like I've, you know, I've, yeah. I've had enough people, particularly during my podcasting days, like, you know, tweet me and tell me that I was everything wrong with the internet or whatever else it might've been to, to, you know, have gotten used to people not liking stuff I've made but it is a harder thing when it's in person like it's a harder thing when somebody tells you that in person and and you know you sort of have to sit there and be like oh cool but I still have to you know I'm the adult in the situation I still have I still have to do my job yeah Yeah. I still have to do my job but I now think you're a little shit and I can't stand you um so I don't know (laughs) it's it's a weird one because you know it's you 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 try to separate yourself from the work and to think you know well I don't Uh, How do I even put it? Like you try to separate yourself and go, well, you know, I, the work isn't mean; It doesn't mean they don't like me, but because the work kind of comes from you and because it is a personal thing, it does feel like a personal attack, even if you don't think it should. Um, And even if you sort of think that you're used to, you're used to being told something isn't good or that you haven't, you know, you haven't done your job properly or whatever it is, it's still kind of. I don't know. It still kind of gets under your skin. Like, I mean, I had recently, like I've, I've got a book coming out in, um, well actually the release date is currently in flux a little bit because with the virus and everything, it's sort of potentially being moved around, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Um, there'll be an announcement as to when it's actually coming pretty soon, but I've got a book coming out very soon, the hunted with Harper Collins and in the UK it's coming out with Faber and, you know, for the most part, the response has been incredible. You know, I've gone around and I've met booksellers in Melbourne who really, really love it and who, you know, are going on about how great it was. We've had some awesome reviews from all around the world. You know, the response has been so exemplary. But then just the other day, I... Got a message from somebody saying, oh, somebody on the radio was talking about your book. And so, like, I ended up, like, going and tracking down, like, the podcast recording of this radio show and listening to it. And it's this guy on the radio being like, oh, yeah. So, you know, anyway, I got an early copy of the book, this book, The Hunted by this Australian writer. And, you know, I couldn't finish it. Got halfway through. Hated it. Terrible. Like, and he's just, like, you know, (laughs) dropping all of this stuff. And I'm sitting there being like, and my first reaction is, no, no, I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. I can hear that. That's fine. You know, not everyone's going to like my book and I've got to be okay with it. But then I spent the rest yeah. of the day sitting there being like, oh, that prick, I can't stand him. How why you say that? And, you know, it is like, it is just one of those things, like, you know, what you make is personal and there's no way to escape that, yeah. unfortunately.
1: It, it's also human nature to just focus on the negative things. Oh, of course like if a hundred people are like, that's amazing, or one person is like,
0: that's terrible. You always just think of the Yes, it's so true. It's like, I can, I'll tell you one thing, like, I've had many, many positive reviews of my work in my life and I could not tell you I could not quote any of them off the top of my head, even the really, really nice ones. But the really nasty reviews I've had, I can recite to you verbatim, word for word. (laughs) Because I've gone over them that many times being like, oh my God, why is he saying this? Is he right? You know, it's that typical kind of creative insecurity that you know you just have to somehow grapple with. I don't know how anyone does it, to be honest.
1: It sounds very draining, emotionally. So I probably, I don't think I'd be able to deal yeah, with that. It's yeah, it's all
0: right. Like, it's, you know, it, the thing is, I mean, and the thing is, you know, to kind of, I realise I just kind of went on a bit of a tangent, but with your first so question I'm being, fine. you know, have I ever had that with somebody in person? Not really. With the exception of, you know, that kid who I spoke about before, it's it's really, really rare that somebody will tell you in person that they really didn't like Bridge Shepherd, or didn't like The Hunted or didn't like Movie yeah. Maintenance or whatever, Um because that's not human nature, is like because you know it, it's a very different story when you have to look somebody in the eye who is a real person in front of you and say to them, Oh, I hated what you made. But yeah, when you're on Twitter or you're behind a computer in any form or you're writing a review, you just sort of it, it's it comes very easily, you know. Um, I mean, I used to, I mean, I did it with movie maintenance, you know, we very openly spoke about our opinions about many films, and that's one thing. I maybe sort of regret because I'm finding myself in a situation now where I have been working with to some degree people who's, who at least were connected to works that I was very critical of on that podcast. And yeah. now I'm kind of thinking, ah, oh, shit, I wish I just kept my mouth shut. And, you know, I saw yeah. the same thing doing, you know, I used to review theater in Melbourne and, you know, it's, it's one thing for you to feel like you have a license to criticize somebody's work in a review and to be honest and do all of that. But then you get angry when somebody says that about your work. Like, how is that okay? So, you know, so it's a weird, it's a weird disconnect where like, you know, where people, people would rightly say, you know, you can dish it out, but you can't take it. And I would say, well, you have to learn how to take it somehow, somehow or another, like, which isn't always easy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> oh,
1: thanks. That was a that was a great chat. That was a great story and a nice little chat afterwards. You mentioned the hunted coming out possibly at some point. Have you got anything else that you'd like to um?
0: Um, at like? this point, not really. Um, because all of the projects that I kind of had on the horizon are kind of in a state of limbo now, thanks to yeah. thanks to the virus. Um, I mean, the hunted, the hunted will be. So the hunted will be out very very soon. Um, it just. Whether it sticks to its original release date at the moment is something that's being discussed because a lot of books are basically being being pushed back and being reshuffled around and everything. But The Hunted will be out this year and you know, you'll know you be able to, if you look up The Hunted in my name, you'll find out when it's coming out. It's, it's At this stage, it's coming out in England and Australia and overseas in quite a few different translations. So it'll be very accessible. Know. So, um, So yeah, I'm really, really excited for that.
1: I think I remember reading, I can't remember if it was on your
0: your twitter ages ago
1: um but it was something like you when you were going to the publishing meetings and there was a certain point in the book that you were like if they don't allow this i'm not letting them publish oh it, yeah or something. yeah
0: yeah
1: i'm very excited to see what that bit is i'm hoping that i will read it and be like
0: oh it's that bit it's <laughs> towards the end of the book and it has okay. stayed in the book completely intact um nice. it's been so funny like there's not much i can say about it but as anybody who yeah, yeah. maybe has followed it knows, um, The Hunted is in development as a film at the moment with Stampede Ventures and Vertigo Entertainment in LA. And, you know, we've been working really hard on the script and I've been working really hard with the director on the script. Um, and, you know, it's it's in, a, it's in a... I mean, obviously, again, it's sort of in limbo because of the virus, but in terms of yeah. the director who's on board and the cast who are being spoken to, it's, it's really, really exciting. But it's so funny because that one moment that I thought was you know so confronting and so horrible in the book but i was so willing to fight for is now in the film version one of the more mild moments um the oh. film version is like the the film version is like the book on crack it's just insane so you know hopefully hopefully that does still happen in good time you know we'll see everything's up in the air right now but with that, apart yeah. from the hunted um the one thing i will spook is Recently, and it was sort of overshadowed by the virus kind of blowing up and becoming world dominating. But my production company, Bitten by Productions, and I just released a new radio play called "The Lucas Betrayal." Um, it's for free online. You can listen to it on Spotify and on uh, on Spotify and on uh, Apple Podcasts and basically wherever you get your podcasts. It's essentially. I don't want to give too much away about it, but it's basically a black comedy about toxic fandom. So if you did listen to Movie Maintenance back in the day, there was an episode we did on toxic fandom that I was really proud of. It sort of stems from a lot of what we were talking about in that. And if you in any way, shape or form followed the the aftermath of The Last Jedi and the outcry and the response to that and the really divisive reaction that people had to that film... Um, you'll probably get a bit of a kick out of it. It's kind of a look at it's kind of a look at the phenomenon of toxic fandom from the perspectives of both fans and creators. So that's free to listen to online. So if you just look up The Lucas Betrayal and My Name, you'll find it pretty easily. But apart from that, um, yeah, at the moment, it's really all about The Hunted w- when it eventually comes out.
1: I must have missed The Lucas Betrayal, but I will get on that. I'll listen to that very soon. I'm excited. Oh,
0: please do. I, th- I hope you really like it. It's-, it's pinned on my Twitter, so it's very easy to find.
1: Oh no. Oh, nice. That will be very easy to find. Yes. Um well, thank you again for for coming on. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. Yeah. Your
0: no, thanks for having me man. That was really fun. Those stories. Yeah, it's um it's I don't know. I, I kind of feel like with those embarrassing stories you just sort of have to, you know, have to just sort of share them and get them out there and laugh about them because otherwise they eat at you, right?
1: Yeah, I agree completely. That's that's the reason I started this because I I had one story that was haunting me. And I was like, oh, I just, I like, I need to get it out. And so I was like, hey, that would actually be a decent idea for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. I think it's awesome. Oh, thank thank you. you. So yeah, thank you again. And oh, well, um, do you want to do your Twitter?
0: Oh yeah. So if you want to tweet me or follow me or tell me how much you hated movie maintenance or, or Boone Shepard or <laughs> any, any of the things we spoke about in this, um, I'm at uh, Geo Bergmoser. So go Bergmoser on Twitter. Um, But if yeah, you just nice. look up my name, you'll find me pretty easily. Awesome.
1: And uh, if you want to get in contact with this show, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at whydidipod or you can email me at whydidipod at gmail.com. And I think that's everything. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you again, Gabe, for coming on. It was lovely to chat.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: That's all right. And we will see you soon. Bye.